Dead Bodies is not for the squeamish and is intended for mature audiences. I don't know, I'm trying to... What's make... in your bag that you need? Oh, your... The back of my chair to go, like, closer to my back so I can sit up straight. Are you comfortable? I'm, I'm not, but oh, I'm okay. This... I'm going to start. Can't start. Okay. Are, you, are you okay? Oh, yes. I was going to launch into my story, but we should talk about that. Mm. So I think I've spoken about this before. James Gargasoulis, he was the man who went on a rampage through through the streets of Melbourne, January 20, 2017. Um, you can Google everything about him. He ran down six people with his car and killed them. He actually ran down many more. He injured 27. Mm. Uh, he's been going through the court process for quite a long time and we've just finished up three days of a plea hearing, which is pretty much the same as going to three days of a funeral. Yeah. Um, this is where all the victims, not just those uh, family members of those who died, those who were injured, first responders and witnesses, got up in court and spoke about how this man has destroyed them and how their lives have been torn apart. Uh, we heard from the injured who some of them have said they've wanted to kill themselves Um Victims, uh, the families of victims who, you know, one uh, woman, her name's Melinda Tan. She is the wife of Matthew C, who died. They'd been having lunch in the city and hours later she was identifying his body in the mm. coroner's court. It's unimaginable uh, the pain and suffering that he's caused and I feel like I've been through a tumble dryer. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah, and I've yeah. been thinking about you. It was impossible to switch off, but it's done now and in a couple of weeks he'll be sentenced and that will be a huge day in court mm. when he's finally sentenced. So it will all come to an end, hopefully, as long as he doesn't appeal. Mm. Mm. Grueling stuff, grueling. Um, I, I want to talk about another murder. It's actually oh. one of the first murders. Can you say it in your... Murder? Because <laughs> Sorry. various spellings, uh, we're of seeing Melita? it with lots of U's and lots of R's. Melita. And I've seen it today on an email, M-O-I. Yeah, I reckon it's M-O-I. I was going to say M-O-I. Melita. I have to keep saying it like that to work out how you spell it. Melita. Don't know. Sorry. I just, I really have fun saying that. Take your chair or mine doing that. It's yours. It's oh Sorry. See, we're not good with the chairs today. Um, so this murder is one of the first ones I covered. We can't laugh. It's a really terrible not murder. Yeah. Not. That okay, was I'll stop saying it. Sniffing. Sniffing. Um, I might go through. It's one of the first ones that I went home probably not okay about. Mm. Not feeling great. Really hit me hard. I'll go through the circumstances of it because the part that kind of tipped me over the edge was obviously after the murder had happened and mm. I'd seen some family members. Um, so it's the story of uh, a man called Bonalual and Susie, I, I'm going to say her surname wrong, Susie Ohia. It's O-G-H-I-A. Ohia? Mm. I don't Ohia? know. Ohia mm. sounds reasonable. Now, um, Bonner and Susie met in Sudan 
They married in the year 2000. Now, he was 23 or 22. She was 18. So they met when they were quite young. Now, in 2002, Bonner was apparently uh, wrongly accused of being part of a rebel tribe in Sudan, and he was placed in solitary confinement without light, only very occasionally getting food um, for around a fortnight. Hmm. He says he was regularly beaten and effectively tortured during that fortnight. Um and that was a real key uh, reason for the couple leaving Sudan. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sought refuge in Australia. Uh, and over the next few years, they had two children uh, after they came here in 2005. Mm. Were they married? Uh, They've got different names, haven't they? They do. I don't believe they were ever officially married. Mm. So they settled in Melbourne. But by the time they arrived here, the relationship was rocky. Okay. Um, Even though they had their problems, they had another two children. Mm. So they've got four altogether. Now, initially, uh, Bonner and his family were living in the suburb of Noble Park, which Mm -hmm. I think is in Melbourne southeast. But friends said that they started to observe things were going wrong in the marriage. There was tension, they were arguing. And in 2007, he moved to Brisbane and Gosh, Susie, if you're not from Australia, that's thousands of kilometres away. Yeah, so yeah. Melbourne's right down the bottom. Brisbane, you're going right at the top. Yeah. Um, Susie stayed here in Melbourne with the uh, four children, but two years later, so 2009, we're in now. She moved up to Brisbane mm. with him. Mm-hmm. So there must have been some sort of reconciliation of some sort she's moved up there however again it didn't take long and tensions boiled over and the marriage oh no i've written marriage so they must have been married at Mm -hmm. some point i'm going to trust my writing and say that they were married (laughs) um and i wrote it i know i wrote it a couple like last week um there were tensions and susie and the four children moved back to melbourne okay Now, occasionally, uh, Bonner would come to Melbourne to visit his family, and it was around 2011 that two of Susie's girlfriends started to notice that she had injuries. So her face would be bruised or cut. She just wasn't okay. Now, Susie had said that Bonner had assaulted her because he thought she was seeing another man. But if he was living in Brisbane, it's none of his business. It sounds like they effectively separated anyway. Correct. Hmm. So what say does he have over? Um, There was no evidence that Susie was ever seeing anyone else. Even even if she was, that's no reason to hit somebody. Now, various witnesses say that... uh, he was always making threats towards her, threats towards her life. Um, and the general, again, the general vibe behind that was that she was having an affair and he would say to her that he would kill anyone she was having an affair with. Um, by 2013, he was in quite a desperate state and he wanted to be back with his family. Um, he ended up actually staying in the family home for one night mm. and after that, I'm not sure what happened that night. Susie had enough courage to tell him, you've got to go. Mm-hmm. You can't stay here. Um, it was recognised later as well that that would have taken her quite a lot of courage mm-hmm. to tell him 
to leave because he was so abusive. Mm. Um, so he goes off and he leaves with friends, but at the same time, he's asking and pestering all their friends um, to let to talk to her to let him move back into the house. So he's not going away by any means. Um, but she stood firm and she would not let him come back and she was looking after all the children. Um, friends of hers believe that he had started stalking her. God. So he would often uh, be seen, say, if she was at a shopping centre, people would say they saw him all of a sudden driving off from the shopping centre after she left the shopping centre mm. and things like that. Um, he also gave his 12-year-old son a phone and a notebook and started asking the son to record what oh, Susie was doing. God. Um, he wanted to know her movements and where she was going and he asked the son to do that. Um, he just couldn't come to terms with the fact that the marriage mm. was, was over. Um, in November 2013, Susie was helping to organise a Melbourne Cup party. Mm -hmm. Now, it's, it's important to remember Susie was really well-liked within the Sudanese community. She is, you know, not just because she's beautiful, but she's a beautiful woman. Mm. She's a lovely personality. She's a great mum. She's very, very well-liked. Mm. She's helping set up this Melbourne Cup party. For those who don't live in Australia, Melbourne Cup is a major horse racing event in Melbourne, the biggest horse racing event. Yes, we call it the race that stops a nation. We get a public holiday. Um, Flemington, where the race is held, gets at least 100,000 people packed in there. It's, it's international celebrities come. It's yeah, and huge. For, for those who don't go to the race, everyone it's a public holiday, so people have barbecues at their house, there's parties, yeah. even if you don't like horse racing. Yes, exactly. Everyone's a part of it. So she's organising that party and he was not invited. He was not invited to the party at all, but he went anyway. Mm. There was actually CCTV that showed him uh, and he was described in court as hiding in the shadows. Ugh. That is so creepy. Now, he was telling people at the dance that he wanted to speak to Susie, but they didn't talk at any point and at about 1am – one o'clock in the morning. I'm so tense because I don't know what's going to happen. She drove home. Yeah. And shortly after, he also left the party. Now, what happens at this point isn't exactly clear because there were no witnesses or at least no adult witnesses to mm. what happened. Um, but what police know is that at some point he's either had a knife in his car or he's gotten a knife from somewhere and forced entry or was perhaps led into the house. But given, and I'm making a total assumption here, given that she wanted nothing to do with him, I find it unlikely that she would have willingly have led him into the house at that mm. kind of hour. Mm. Um, and this is what the judge described as happening. And I'll read this directly. It is clear from the pathological and forensic evidence that you gained access to a very large knife and confronted Susie in the living room adjacent to the kitchen and stabbed her once very deeply in the right lower abdomen. Mm. This attack caused great internal damage and Susie died in a very short time. Before leaving, but after your wife had died, you inflicted two further stab wounds, one to each eye. Oh. He later said her eyeballs had been, her eyes had been carefully mutilated. Mm. Now, after the attack, he called emergency services himself. And I have that audio. What's the problem there? Why do you need police? Because the lady is stopped 
in the stomach. I'm going to die. Never... What's up? Can you tell me what's happening? He's fighting with husband. Okay. Oh, any yeah. weapons involved? Yep. Big knife. Anyone been stabbed? Yep. The lady's been stabbed. Maybe going to die. Something. I don't know. Where has she been stabbed? In the stomach. Not in the eyes? Doesn't say that she's been stabbed in the eyes, but very matter of fact, yep, she's maybe going to die, stabbed in the stomach, got to come quickly. Now, after that, after that phone call, he drove back to the party, picked up his friend, and they then drove to a police station where he handed himself in. I'm just, my mouth's hanging open. I can't believe... Um, Why did he go back to the party? I can't... I'm not sure. I don't know if he needed someone to drive him to the police station. Can we just pause on the eye thing? You know, yes. when it's someone who kills someone who they know or had loved at some point in their life, you hear of them covering the face mm. or... Co- you know, they, they... I don't want to say treat the body gently, but there's, there's something about they don't... It's really they vicious. Cover it. But to... To stab in the eyes. To it's, carefully mutilate her eyes. As though he didn't want her to look at him. Hmm. But she was dead already. It's horrible. It, it's beyond horrible. I mean, the oh, the eyes of anything. Now, he's obviously handed himself in, mm-hmm. said what he's done. Police went to the home knowing they were going to find a body. What they didn't realise was they also found the four children. They were asleep in their bedrooms. Were they all right? They were fine. Oh, God. The police were, um, I don't want to say congratulated, but they were, what's the word I'm looking for, commended Yeah. in court for the way they removed the children, ensuring they used a back door so they mm. wouldn't see, to see their mum's their body. Oh, goodness. Uh, In court, the judge said, the impact of your offending has been profound. Your children have been taken in by members of the community. In one selfish action, they have been deprived of a mother and a father. Your son is a brave young man. His victim impact statement was particularly moving. I also take into account the impact of your crime on the members of the community who it seems are struggling to come to terms with the loss of their friend. In June 2015, he was sentenced to a maximum of 21 years with a minimum of 16 and a half years. And those children now live with members of the Sudanese community. Oh, goodness. Now, this murder particularly hit me really hard because what I remember is turning up to this house. And it was one of those news stories where... You know, we wanted to illustrate that there were children in the house and that was easy to do because the front yard was littered with children's toys. Mm -hmm. You know, that literally the little pink bike in the, you know. And then what happened was it was the first crime scene where I saw a family member turn up that had probably heard something had happened but wasn't sure and then turned up, saw all of us outside the house. Oh, goodness. Saw the police tape and I remember I was on the phone to my sister Mm. just saying, yeah, I'm just at a job and this woman's been murdered. And this woman ran from across the street saying, that's my sister. Mm. And you're on the phone to your sister. And I was on the phone to my sister. Mm. And I remember instantly I couldn't talk and my throat just seized up and all I could get out was telling my sister, I've got to go. Mm. And I hung up the phone and it was around that point that 
I, I saw a police officer grab her and she was saying, please, I need to see her. I need to see her. Mm. He was saying, you can't go inside the no, house. You cannot no. go inside the house. And we didn't know at this stage she had been mutilated. So mm. we knew that she'd been stabbed to death. We didn't know that she'd been mutilated. Um, and uh, then what happened was about 20 Sudanese women appeared out of nowhere. Oh, her friends. And their way of grieving was that they scream and they howl. Of course, that's what everyone does, but they then start to bang on the ground. And I have no idea if that is a traditional thing or what it was, but Mm. they all did it. And it was so confronting and raw and real that I was just Mm. really shaken by it. And I remember... Other camera crews from other networks were filming it. And I said to my cameraman, do not film it. Mm. It is too traumatic to even show to people. Mm. It's so awful. Do not film it. Um, I think that was the right call too. Oh, and, you know, like there is a level of grief that is too traumatic for TV Mm. news. There absolutely is. And that was it. Mm. It felt... I know that we all, you know, as the media, we impose on people's grief and we film people in their hardest times, but we can also make a call. Yeah. And that was too much. And I remember other television stations playing it and I didn't care. Yeah. I was just, I was happy in my decision that we chose not to play it. I think you did the right thing too. I think it's human nature to try and think why, why, why does anyone do that? You know, and he obviously had a horrible life himself mm. in in. The Sudan, but if you are, are granted to to come and live in Australia, mm. you've won the lottery of life. I know, and you take that and you make the very best of it that you can. Yeah, and jealousy, and that's I think it's got je- nothing to do with where you live is, or anything. Is is jealousy not just the overriding emotion? Of, yeah, it of, is. Of, of, Men and women that drives them to kill. But you, I know, but uh, don't kill. Like, there's got to be. I know. There's so, why do some people but go that, too far and they do? If I can't have you, no one's going to have you. Yeah. It's that. How frequently do you hear that? Yeah, yeah. That's the bit I don't get. Yeah. Awful. And I've been really careful not to name those kids because mm. they now have, they're, they're victims of crime. Yeah. Um, but I have driven past that house like a bit of a creepo, but I mm. have driven past that house. Just I don't know why I drove past it, but I did. I would you? someone else would be life. living in it now? I think so. Would you? Um, because they have to tell. I think they don't have to like list it in the real estate but ad. But if you ask. If you have to uh, But would you routinely uh, – well, you and I would. <laughs> Excuse I'd me. I'd ask. Has there been a murder here? Has anyone been murdered in this house? Uh, I remember going through a house once and walking into a room and – just getting the the chills and thinking, yeah. Well, something have I told this here. story about how I, in my childhood home, my mum is convinced someone died in that house. Really? Yeah. So we had, it was it was actually quite a large house, um, and there were quite uh, three four, three bathrooms. I'm picturing Downton Abbey. I know. I don't mm. know. Yes, it was quite a large house, and in the downstairs bathroom, that bathroom. No matter if it was 40 degrees outside, was freezing cold and it had windows Mm. and there was never a reason for that bathroom 
not to heat up like the rest of the house. And my mum would never use that bathroom. And it wasn't until years later that we said to her, why did you never, there was something weird with that house. And she goes, yeah, I just got a feeling in that there was just something happened in that bathroom. Mm. Never saw anything creepy, but. No, see, I own the oldest house in the world. Yes, not really, but it is oldish. Do. Yeah, dead people in the um, backyard. Do you know what? I found a bone uh, yesterday, oh. actually. And <laughs> this, he, I'll tell you the truth, what happened, uh, because the dog hasn't been well. I was wandering around the garden with him, saw something white sticking up out of the ground, went, what's that? Tibia. Chunk of bone. Well, I was thinking more thigh bone. Is it fibia? Tibia. Whatever that is. Ooh, yeah. Uh, but it had been cut straight across, and I actually picked it up dusted the dirt off it, put it in a plastic bag and was going to bring it in here and say to you, there is a dead body in my garden. But then I didn't because I actually think it might be one of Harvey's bones, Harvey's my golden retriever. I think it might be one of his bones that he's buried and it's just become white. Okay. And, hmm. That would have been interesting if it was a human bone and you brought it in here and then yeah. the police asked you. I don't think it was. Done? And it's okay. right in the part of the garden because the house used to be a farm where they there was a sheep dip many years ago. So it's entirely possible that it was Do you reckon your chair's of... going to stop squeaking at any point in this episode? Should I stand up to do it? <laughs> no. Sorry, I'll try and sit really still. Just sit still. Very wriggly. Um, this, my story tonight came from, we had an email from Bryn back at the beginning of January. Hello, Bryn. She says, nice things, nice things. Greetings from Nashville, Tennessee. No way. Yeah. In the USA. We totally love you here. Oops. I mean, nice things, nice things. I knocked my mic. That is not a Tennessee and Nashvilleian. I'm going to Nashville, Tennessee, not in 2020. Oh. And I just wanted to start singing Debbie Debbie Harry. Don't. 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 One is nope. 2020 vision. Um, okay, you need so, to choose yes. per episode either singing or accents. You can't do both can't in one do both. episode. What if I sang in an accent? And you've already done both, so you you clocked it. You're done. Right. Off you go. Um, Bryn says, I've never found a dead body, but it's always been a dream of mine. I don't need my glasses on. Uh, anyway, I was binging your podcast. Oh, stop referring to binging, please, people. I was binging your podcast and remembered a story I heard uh, about that I had to share with you. She attached an article, which I'll get to in a second. Sure. Two young women were in a car accident. Now, I'm going to stop reading uh, Bryn's email there because I'll pick up the story for her. Um, tell you in the story in a second. She signs off by saying, P.S. Love your accents. Even saying, fuck off. Sounds so great. Do we say it in a funny way? Oh, our accents. The yes. ones that we have that she we likes don't our, put on. She likes our Australian. Fuck off. That's yeah, how we say, we say it. because we say it like rednecks. Well, there's different ways of saying it, yeah. If it's like, get out of here, it's fuck off. If you're in the traffic, give me one if someone's just oh, cut you see, off. see, I don't really say fuck off. I, I like a get fucked. Oh, okay. Or a go F yourself. I try. I even try not to swear in the traffic, in just in case they read my lips. I don't want to think I'm not a lady. So I'll often say, what are we doing here? And do the hands <laughs> up in the air. What is going on? I, I shake my at me. fist in the rearview mirror. Uh, so Bryn shared this story and um, here's my version of it. Uh, a lot of this actually I took not only from the article that she passed on but uh, an interview that Matt Lauer did on today with the families who are involved in this particular story um, and then the rest comes from an article in the New York Times. So let's go back to 2006. It was a cool spring evening and we are in, I think we're in Michigan. I'm not good with my American states, but I think that's where we are. young lady by the name of Laura Van Rin was 22. Uh, her parents were Don and Susie, and they lived in Caledonia in Michigan. 
Laura had an older sister, Lisa, and two brothers, Kenny and Mark. I can't hear the name Kenny without thinking of South Park. Who killed Kenny? Oh. It's all right. Kenny doesn't die. Not this Kenny. Not that I think Kenny. that toilet movie. Oh, Kenny. If you haven't seen it, it's an Australian movie. People in other countries should see it. It's very funny. It's cute. Um, okay. Let's not talk about poo again because you know mm-hmm. what happened last time. We mentioned poo. Mm-hmm. Uh, Laura had been dating a guy called Aaron for three years. Everyone knew that they were going to get married one day. They were very much in love. Now, there's another girl named Whitney. Whitney Serak was 18 years old. She grew up about a three-hour drive away in Gaylord in Michigan with her parents, Newell and Colleen, and she had an older sister also called Carly. And both of those girls went to Taylor University. They didn't know each other, well, not very well anyway, but one night they were working together at Taylor University's campus in Fort Wayne, and they were setting up a banquet. At around 8 o'clock that night, can I just say, you, Chanel Vella, because I know how you work, I know how your brain works, you are, you're going to figure this out. In fact, everyone listening is going to figure this out. No, don't say that because then I'm dumb if I don't. No, no, you will. You will. You'll figure it out. But just it, And I'm it, fragile today, so maybe my brain won't work as well. Yeah, possibly. So no, you we'll will. try. You'll work it out. But, um, but just think about the parties involved and how this would have been for them. So at around 8 o'clock at night, Laura and Whitney, they're working together at setting up this banquet. Um, They, along with seven other students and staff, they hopped into a school van and they were heading south on Interstate 69, heading back to the main campus of the university. And coming towards them, a truck driver lost control of his semi that was fully loaded. It crossed over the median strip and it sideswiped the bus that the girls and the other students were in. It ripped it open Mm. and the impact flung the passengers and their belongings all over the road. Uh, There were nine people in the van. Five of them were killed instantly. Mm. Four suffered injuries. Of the four that survived, suffered um, some of them quite serious injuries. One of the young women had been thrown 50 feet from the wreckage. She was barely breathing, so she was quickly airlifted to the nearest trauma centre. How much is 50 feet? My Australian brain can't work that out. Uh, 50 feet. We'll just divide it by three because three feet is a metre roughly. Uh, I'm Googling it because okay. that's faster. 15.2 metres. Yeah, it's a long way. It's far. Um, so the trauma centre where that young woman who was still alive but really badly injured where she was taken um, – Laura Van Rin's family, they received a call and they were told to go to that hospital. And as they were heading there, the hospital was calling them to say that Laura was unconscious, that she had some broken bones, she had a head injury. They gave permission during the trip to the to the hospital to have a tube put into her head that can monitor the swelling and the bleeding on the brain. Now, the other girl that I mentioned, Whitney, her mother, Colleen, had by this stage heard that her daughter was also in that crash and around uh, 10.45 that night, the coroner called her and the chaplain as well. Yep, And they said, um, well, she said later, I think they just told me that they were very sorry, that Whitney was one of the victims in the accident and that she had died. Um, She told her husband, sorry, she's gone. And she said, I just started crying like a baby. Um, Whitney's father, Newell, was a thousand miles away. He was on a church trip in Mississippi. 
So the family pastor called Whitney's sister, Carly, to tell her that Whitney had died. And she said she remembers just dropping the phone and falling right there on the spot and crying. So Carly rushed straight to the hospital. Um, she says she was too emotional to see the body. So they'd taken her to a separate room and they'd given her Whitney's, they say purse in America, we say handbag. Mm. Uh, she said it was just horrible. It smelled of, of petrol, petrol, gasoline. Yeah. Everything in it was smashed, the credit cards, everything was snapped and broken. She thought, I, I just, I, I don't want to see, see what's happened to my sister yeah. if this is what has happened to her bag. Uh, when her mother got to the hospital, she said that she just wanted to remember her daughter the way she was, alive and beautiful. Um, she didn't, didn't want to look at the body all battered, so she didn't. Now, six hours after the crash, 50 miles away at Parkview Hospital, uh, Laura's parents and sisters had been told that because they'd arrived now to see Laura at the hospital, um, they were told, they were warned, she's not going to look like herself. Um, and when they did see her, they said a lot of things were just foreign. There were machines, there were tubes, that she had a blanket over her. Mm. Everything was wrapped up. Her eyes were closed. Her face was swollen. There was a tube stuck in the side of her mouth. Uh, so her mouth was sort of pulled down funny at the side. And of course, she couldn't talk. Can I interrupt? Yes. I have seen a loved one like that. Oh, really? It is so shocking. Do they warn you beforehand that they warn, what you're going to see? Well, they warned us that there was bruising and swelling, mm. but it was, I can't even Unrecognizable. Desc- oh, I can't even describe it. Mm. It's such a awful awful thing because mm. they just because they don't look like them it's so difficult to accept that it's them yeah yep and they literally look nothing i always think that when like i what your uh, brain remembers do you watch that show um 24 hours in emergency and well, they bring in all those shows oh, i they, watch all of them i can't look at the open wounds but where they oh. bring in people who've like had accidents but i yeah. love it at the end when they sort of sit up and say oh and i'm so grateful and you think who are who are you you're different you're different firstly i've never seen you other than horizontal yes and i've never seen you other than puffed up like a watermelon I and love, look at you now i love all those shows uh let's see so um this is Laura in the hospital. Uh, her mother said, your heart just aches to see your daughter laying there helpless and you're, you're helpless to fix her. So Laura's ha- family were given a big bag of her belongings. Her mum recognised the um, the bag, the handbag and the wallet, but not the shoes that were in this bag. She said, but we always borrow clothes and share shoes and things sure. like that. And so we thought, well, she must be, have been wearing someone else's shoes. On the day after the crash, Taylor University held a prayer service for the victims and Whitney, who's had died, her mum, Colleen, attended. Uh, so Whitney's mum, Colleen, said it, it was just surreal. Uh, Whitney's father, Newell, said it was like, he, he said he felt like the world should stop. Yeah. Because of the pain that he was feeling. That's exactly how we felt when it happened to us with mm. a loved one. And I remember you're in the hospital for so many days mm. that you kind of forget Time. You forget the you forget the day. It was actually it was Nicholas's dad, and I remember at one point we had been back and forth to the hospital so many times. And when we when we woke up one day, it must have been like three days later. Mm. I looked at him and I said, "When was the last time we ate?" Mm. 
Mm. And we couldn't remember. Because you don't know what's day and what's night. Because your whole world stops. Mm. And then you go outside and there's cars on the road and there's people going to work and there's people going to the shops and laughing. And you think, why aren't you all stopping? This Mm. awful thing has happened to us. Don't you know? Yeah. It's absolutely how you feel. It made total sense to me when when he said that. Um, So the family all went back to Whitney's dorm. They picked up her belongings and they started the long drive back home. I just can't imagine how that would be to have to go home without your daughter. On the way, as they were driving, they wrote Whitney's obituary. Um, And when they tried to sum up Whitney's life... The uh, sorry, while they were doing that in their car, mm. Laura Van Rin's family were obviously at her bedside with her, uh, keeping around the clock vigil. And these two families still had not met each right. other at this point. Two days after the crash, uh, Lisa Van Rin, Laura's older sister, started a blog to keep all her friends and family updated on Laura's condition. She reported that her, her left leg and left elbow and her clavicle were broken. She had fractured ribs, cuts and bruises. The force of the crash had slammed her brain around inside her skull, mm. which had caused serious damage, and she was in a coma. So the family took turns sitting by Laura's bedside 24 hours a day. Um, Whitney's family, the girl who'd passed her they were keeping a different kind of vigil um the day before her funeral people came to visit the family and to pay their respects by a horrible quirk of fate it was also whitney's birthday that day Mm. um they closed the casket on that day on the Um, day of her funeral it was her birthday the day before yeah before Mm. Mm. um but people came to visit and pay their respects the casket was there but it was closed obviously because of the state she was in. Now, four days after the crash, they held her funeral. More than 1,400 people attended and the Seracs buried her on Monday, May the 1st, I have this feeling about what's going to happen. Yeah, I thought you might. Six days after the crash, Laura had surgery to set her broken leg and her elbow. The um, Can I guess? Or do you want no, me not to? No, I think just leave it. Okay. Because others may have not. Oh, um, she had had a tracheotomy, so there was no longer anything in her mouth. Yeah. The tubes had all been removed, but she was still in a coma. She was still very heavily bandaged and her face was really swollen still. This so in awful, the inter- I, I know. Stay with me. In the intensive care unit, Laura and her family were surrounded by – loads of visitors came to see her. Lisa's blog reported little signs of movements in her hands, her toes and her eyes. They watched for even just the tiniest sign of consciousness. Um, But when there finally was a sign of life from Laura, it was a little bit odd. She yawned and when she opened her mouth, her mother noticed that the two teeth on either side in the front looked a little bit different to how she remembered Laura's teeth and they thought perhaps she had just hit her mouth in the accident. Uh, the university held a memorial service for the four students and the staff member who had been killed in the crash. Whitney's family drove down from Michigan and before the service, they had dinner at the home of the university's president and they met the official who had identified Whitney's body and they thanked him for what he'd done. Mm. I feel like they shouldn't have thanked him. Uh, Now, Laura's family had left her bedside for a few hours to go to that service and it was there at that service that the, you know, for those who died in the accident, that those two families met for the first time. Uh, They, um, 
Whitney's family said that, or they both said that they were praying for each other's family. Uh, By this stage, Laura had been in a coma for 11 days. Her sister Lisa's blog said she was breathing now entirely on her own and she was able to sit up in a chair. She was still unconscious, but she was able to move a little bit. I'm not sure how that works. I guess it's like sleepwalking or something. At one point, stop it. Stop looking at each other, Kirsten and Chanel, because I know you figured it out. I'll tell you why, because... After this, I've written something and I'm going to get you I to read it writing notes. because okay. because right. it's it's actually so coincidental that you're doing this story and something it's kind of freaky. Go. Okay. Uh, at one point, so her sister was with her and Laura's hospital gown rode up, and you could see that her navel was pierced, and mm-hmm. her sister looked at it and thought, "Well, I didn't know that she'd had that done. Mm, hmm. She didn't. I wonder if Mum and Dad know that she's had a piercing they put don't. in." And she just kind of shrugged it off. No. Investigate. After 20 days in a coma. I'm going to pause and editorialise here. But doesn't this tell you, because I know you figured it out, and don't say it still for those who haven't, how people believe what they want to believe. Of course. Yeah. 20 days, Laura had been in a coma. She opened her eyes. Mm. And and said? No. Because it's not like in the movies, and they said that it's not like in the movies when it go, they go, oh, bing, the eyes are open. It's like, oh my god, what am I doing here? Mm. It's not like she that at all. She opened her eyes, and she thought she had one eye a little bit open, and then the other one not quite, and she couldn't quite focus on anything. But she started talking that same night, and she said, mm. "Hi," which is not really a lot of information to work with, is it? Yeah, because she was thinking. Can I say what she was thinking? Don't say it. So remember, this is 20 days after the accident. Whitney's family starting to restart their lives. Their home obviously would never be the same. Um, Her sister had gone back to the same university, Taylor University. Sure. But they said time was just a blur, which is like what you were describing a moment ago. They felt a big hole in their hearts. Yep. Three weeks after the crash, Laura was moved to a rehabilitation centre. Her sister's blog said that Laura was alert, bright-eyed, but not aware of everything that was going on that well. She couldn't respond very well and she, her, she still wasn't focusing very well. Her How boyfriend was this on her face? Gone down a bit. Her boyfriend, however, and remember they were, you know, everyone knew they were going to get married, he had noticed something a bit odd, that her eyes were much bluer than they had been. Four this weeks. crazy. I know. Four weeks, but I can understand because they wanted to believe. I know, I'm not victim-blaming, but this is crazy. I know. Four weeks and two days after the crash. Yeah, but think of the repercussions. If you say what you want to say, think of the repercussions for the other family. No, but if – no. Hang on. Four weeks and two days after the crash – Laura was undergoing some intensive therapy. She was trying to learn how to walk again and how to talk. Her speech improved slowly. This is nuts. And she started to say some rather strange things. Yeah, she called, like, who are you? No, she doesn't say that. <laughs> yeah, like, she, she did. Called, she she does what she was thinking. No. Who are you? Why didn't. am I here? Where's my family? She, Why are you calling me that strange name? She called her sister Lisa Carly. She also called her April. So this is weird. They just thought she was confused. Uh, Maybe she had a nurse by the name of April or something like that. She also called her boyfriend, whose name was Aaron, Hunter. And 
told him to lie down. Now, it's apparently not unusual for patients with a brain of injury course. to call people by the wrong name. Yes. They showed her her picture of her roommates and she knew all their names. Uh, a Laura, um, uh, sorry, a therapist asked Laura to write her name down. And she wrote? Whitney. The therapist then asked the family, <gasps> does she know a Whitney? And they said, well, there was another girl in the accident. I've got goosebumps. Her father um, thought that perhaps she had been sitting in the van next to Whitney just before the accident. So she must, okay. Yes. Giving, putting full benefit of the doubt, mm. of doubt. I'm saying that wrong. Whatever. Yeah. She's obviously still very swollen, right? Yeah. Four weeks? Yes. Is that a long time to be swollen? Well, wait until I, sh- I'm going to, I am going to show you a picture of the girls in a moment, but. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the dad thought that perhaps Whitney had been next to her in the van, that that was the last thing she saw and that, that she was just asking, you know, is Whitney okay? Yes. But then there was another disturbing moment. She was being wheeled down the hall back from therapy and she mumbled false parents. This is like a scary movie now. False parents. And her mother then, she said, that's when it really kicked in. She thought something is very wrong here. Uh, some friends joined the Van Rin family for dinner at the rehab centre and apparently they had just a strange look pass between them. They must have twigged. But see, they weren't as invested as the family were in wanting that to be, Laura. Um, and apparently the friends were very quiet for the whole evening because you could that they were obviously thinking what you're thinking right now, Chanel Vella. I would I would say so, I would say something. I mm. would say that it's not your daughter. Well, the older sister spoke to the dad about what had happened during the day and she said she was actually now thinking this might not be Laura. The teeth. The two the belly button. The two blue eyes. Yep. The piercing. The wrong shoes. Um, she fact written she her, wrote name her name is Whitney. Whitney. Yep. So she found a picture of because she really didn't. The sister didn't know Whitney at all. She found a picture okay. of Whitney from the funeral. Okay, that makes it kind of better. I I, I thought maybe they knew Whitney. No, okay. no, because the, the two families only met for the first time at the memorial yeah, yeah, for all yeah, the yeah, other yeah, people yeah. who died. Yeah. yeah. And so when the older sister looked at a picture of Whitney. She went, that's the girl. That's the girl in the bed. Can you uh, – uh, it's it's so hard to digest this because you think – Because then your brain goes, as but, the sister, where's my sister? Exactly. Thank you. Uh, her mother, Susie, said, please don't take Laura from me. Lord, my heart is heavy today. Please don't let it be. My heart cries out in desperation to you. This would be more than and, I can bear. And sh- – She's already buried. That's right. But someone else buried your daughter. It's very complex. So her thinking was, the mother's thinking was, there's a girl laying in that bed. She's the daughter of someone and that daughter needs her mother and that mother needs her daughter. And if I'm not that mother, then I need to get her mother straight away. So do not look up a picture. Are you Googling? No, I wasn't. I was just actually Because I'm going to, to present if... you with the photo no, dramatically at I the know. end. I right. I was looking to see if I had a work email. Sorry. <laughs> a couple more pages to go. Sorry. Will you please stay no, with me? That. I was just please, you. please. We're in a weird situation. I have to go to work after this episode. I know. To do a weird have late night time? thing. Yes. Okay. Uh, so the Van Rins 
had been caring for what they believed was all right. You've you figured it out. They what they believed was their own critically this injured is daughter. Awful for everybody involved in I this know. situation. Five weeks around the clock, they had been caring what for a girl. Do? do you say that wasn't their daughter? Go and get her out. You have to get her out of the ground. Mm. She's in someone else's grave. Yeah, there could be a tombstone there, and you want to have your own situation. Well, they sort of round you the never, clock back. They never see her to when she was. My voice has gone high because I'm outraged. <laughs> Sorry, there's so tell. many. Levels of awful to this. Thankfully, they were more, more rational than you, Chanel. Oh. So they wound all the way back, and they, they let's be sure before we say anything to anyone, they went back to the accident to find out how were the bodies identified after the accident. And were told that the accident scene had been absolutely disastrous. There was stuff scattered all over. Yeah, it would have been a and and she was site. only identified by visual ID. And remember, they didn't want to see the body. They didn't want to view Whitney's body. Yeah. Um, so uh, apparently um, Lisa, the older sister, kneeled down face to face with what she th- thought was Laura. It was probably Whitney at this point. And she said, can you tell me your name? And the girl said to her, Whitney. And she said, what are your parents' names? And she said, Newell and Colleen. Now, there's no way that Laura would have known that. So that was the absolute confirmation. They all knew in their hearts that this woman they'd been caring for and loved for five weeks. They'd put everything into her. They knew that she wasn't theirs. They've also made all the medical decisions for someone else's child. It's so complex, isn't it? Their first thought, though, was to make sure that they did the right thing for Whitney and for her family. You almost have to do a handover. Yes. Hi. Yeah. Sorry. I need to grieve because my child is dead, but yeah. I also need to tell you all the decisions I've made for your child over the last That's exactly five it. weeks. And she's alive. So. Yes. So Colleen and Newell, Whitney's Where is parents, my daughter buried? They wouldn't even know where she was buried. Well, they do because they're going to ask them. I know, they're but at that point it. they don't know. <sighs> they rang the parents. They said, we have reason to believe your daughter, Whitney, is still alive. And they go, you're crazy. Mm. Uh, yeah. They made the three-hour trip to the rehab centre all the way. hanging up the phone motion, which is why I said, yeah. Not believing it. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Whitney's sister, Carly, was certain that it wasn't Whitney. She didn't even want to go on the trip. No, because she you'd only... think it was stupid. Yeah. On the drive, Colleen and Carly discussed it. They said if they couldn't – and think of this for them. They're driving there and they're saying – well, if those people couldn't recognise their own daughter for all this time, what the hell is she going to look like? What must she look like? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. So they reached the rehab centre as uh, a daybreak. The staff was waiting at the door. They got to the room. The girl, like this is like in a movie, was facing the window, laying down in a bed. And Colleen said, even from behind, even like that, she knew that it was Whitney and the sister pushed past, Carly pushed past, and she said, it's Whitney, it's Whitney. Um, they just kept saying her name, and Whitney was nodding her head saying, yes, 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 like this. They called Whitney's father, Newell. They told him, and oh. he says he just fell to the floor. What an and, awful moment, yeah. though, where you've got this family rushing past you, absolutely delighted, and, and rightfully so. I think they were really good about it. They were just, at this stage, they realised yeah. the loss was theirs. That's yeah. But they cared more for this family who had been grieving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who yeah. now, yeah, exactly. Um, so they'd gone from having the hope of having that to this confirmation, absolutely. And dental records were the yeah. final thing they used to just confirm that it absolutely was Whitney and that Laura was gone. So the families met at the rehab centre. Um, the Seracs were reunited with Whitney and. 
funnily enough, uh, Susie, Laura's mother, had this feeling that they're going to hate us because mm. we've kept their daughter from them all this time. But yeah. it certainly wasn't nothing like – it was nothing, nothing like, like that. that. They both had nothing but compassion for each other, which was great. And and the father said, you must think we're the world's biggest dopes not knowing our own daughter. And they said, no, we love you guys and don't even think that for a second. Mm. So it was – so it, in effect, the families just switched roles completely, like they'd pass through a mirror or something. So now Whitney's family had to cope with a brain-injured patient – and Laura's family planned a funeral. This The story made headlines all around the world. Um, there were questions. How did it happen? How did it go on for so long? There was a memorial her, uh, service held then for Laura. There was one question, though, hovering over all, them, uh, over all of them. They said they just couldn't explain to people. They were there at her bedside. How did it go on for so long? They're saying that the, the two women's bags must have been and their IDs were switched Switch at the around. scene. Yeah. Um, the coroner acknowledged later that there had been no scientific tests done to confirm the identities of the dead yeah. because at that time the state law didn't require any. Mm. Uh, no member of Whitney's family ever asked to see the body and not victim blaming at all because I understand why they didn't. But, oh, sure. um, but nobody at the hospital asked how was the body identified. Whitney apparently is about four inches taller than Laura. You wouldn't be able to tell, though. She's laying down. You wouldn't know. And again, your brain would go, oh, it's because of, of the course. accident. Yeah, so they expected to see a strange, you know, looking unusual. Um, and I just think it comes down to we see what we want to see. Yeah, we believe what we want to believe. Yeah, and, it's, and uh, one of the family members said, because um, people were going, why didn't you notice the teeth? Why didn't you notice the shoes? Why not? And they said... It's like those were pieces of a puzzle, but we didn't know there was a puzzle. Yeah, that's right. They were. That's a very good point. They yeah. weren't looking for. They weren't told look after this. Yeah, person who may or may not be your daughter. So I'll show you at this point, Chanel, a picture of the two girls, and we will post this oh on our Lord, social media. They're almost identical. It's extraordinary. You see, their teeth are slightly turned in. One's yeah, got the teeth is the in. only like even the nose is kind of the same. The way their cheeks fall is the same. They look like twins. It's just so, extraordinary. So Whitney obviously is still alive. Uh, she also was interviewed by Matt Lauer. She said it makes me really sad whenever I think about it. It's really sad. It's really hard for me to even imagine what they went through, but I know it must have been hard. She says there's a huge gap in her memory that starts on the night of the crash. She remembers working at the banquet and that it was a lot of fun and that they stopped for pizza afterwards, but she can't even remember where she was sitting in the van. Her first memory after the pizza is of rolling over in the hospital bed and seeing her mother and just crying a lot. So she has no memory of them looking after the other family. Isn't that incredible? The five weeks she said are just a blur. They're just mostly blank. Um, Yeah. Oh, and just to explain when she called... Laura's boyfriend, Aaron Hunter. Mm. Hunter apparently was the name, you'll appreciate this, uh, of her dog. Oh. Uh, and she, she just, for some reason, the dog's that. name came out. Yeah. Now, can I say my weird Okay, thing? please do. I spoke at the start of this episode about uh, James Gargasoulis. Yeah. And I spoke about uh, Melinda Tan. Mm. Did I speak about Melinda Tan? Yeah, you did. I've spoken about this story so much, I can't remember what I've said mm. where. Um now, when she went to ID the body yeah. of her husband, she told the court that his face was unrecognisable. And 
that he was a very proud man. He was always a good-looking man. Mm. And to see his face like that Mm. broke her heart. And she said the only way she could identify him was by knowing that his arms were his arms and his legs were his legs. We've talked about this. You've got a mole in your ear. I've remembered it in case ever have to. Well, that really stuck with me because I thought to myself – that is something that only a lover can do. Mm. And not because of anything intimate, but just because you know your partner's body. Yeah. You know? And I think when well, she said that, in it your stuck case, with me. Um, and I, obviously, I follow you on Instagram and I did notice. Oh, no. Yes. I know. Not only do you know your partner's body, but everyone who follows you on Instagram knows your partner Nicholas's body. I know. And Chanel if, surprised him in the shower the other day. Well, Thank God for the pixelation, I say. I might just put this out there as well. I think some of the listeners <laughs> to this podcast try to follow me on Instagram. Yeah, and my not Instagram is advisable. on private and right. it's on private because I often <laughs> scare Nicholas in the shower. Yes, and, and bless you for doing it. I put it on it. the internet. I love it. I blur it. <laughs> And then I put it on the internet. <laughs> so I, and so I feel like I need to have it on private because he's also... You're going to give him an actual heart attack one day. I know. Uh, okay, so Whitney has gone to the ceremony where her parents buried her. <gasps> she has seen where her parents buried her. How many people That's can say so that? Uh, Taylor University is building a chapel dedicated to the five people who were cre- uh, killed in the crash. Mm. Um about a week after the mix-up was discovered, Laura Van Rin's body was removed from the cemetery near Whitney's house and it was laid to rest near her own family's home. But just one final footnote, and this was from December last year, 2018, in Canada. There was a, a bus carrying members of the Humboldt Broncos junior hockey team that collided with a tractor-trailer, which killed 15 and injured 14 members of the team. Two of the junior players involved in the crash were misidentified. One was reported dead and he wasn't. Another was reported as alive. He was dead. There were 28 people, including the driver, on board the bus. Um, The mix-up between the two players was discovered two days after the crash. All of the players in that team had – they were going into the playoffs. They had all dyed their hair blonde. (gasps) So they all had the same hair. I've reported someone dead when they weren't dead. Oh, wasn't my fault though. So police told us, and I can't remember the exact story, but I remember the outrage. Police had told us that this person had died. And so we're all on the TV news saying, dead, 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 dead. The next day, they sent out an email saying, actually, that person's still alive. Mm. I can't remember if we made an actual, if we put something out saying they're alive or if we just left it. We used to have this thing when I, I worked remember. at Fox FM called a Fox card. It was like a credit card, but it wasn't a credit. It was just if you listened to the Fox, you were given, you had this little card, Fox yeah. card. And every day we would call out a number right. of one of the cards. And if that was your number and you rang up and said, hey, that's me, they would go, hey, you've won. You know, probably $100 was a lot in those days. Yeah. And so every day it would be like, okay, today we're looking for Fox card number 74752. Yeah. Come on. And we knew the name that was associated oh, with right. it. So like later in the day, if the person still hadn't called, you'd be going, Mike, come on, Mike, what's wrong with you? Yep. 75752, come on, give us a ring at the Fox and pick up your $100 Fox card cash. And um, we were getting a bit stuck in, Mike, you idiot, come oh, no. on, there's cash sitting here, it's oh, free cash, no. give away. Yes. Mike's mum rang later and dad said, <clears throat> Mike's passed, Mike's dead, he won't be ringing to collect his Fox card cash. I know. Did she say how he died? No. Motorbike accident. Oh. Mm. 
I've changed the name to protect the innocent. Yes. Well, I was just wondering if Mike <laughs> had perhaps entered the, the fox no. card of cash on his deathbed, but... Wow. There we are. Uh, So there we are. That's your episode of Dead Bodies Podcast. Remember, we would love to hear from you um, if you can tell a little story on tape, record it on your phone. Chanel knows how to do it. She's clever with that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Just record it on the thingy. Yep. Send it to us. Email it to us, deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com. Have you ever seen a dead body? Dead Bodies is created by D.D. Dunleavy and Chanel Vella and produced by Kirsten Lim Howe. Contact us at deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com.